The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. I think democracy and capitalism are individually in crisis in that they're not working very well and that the combination of the two in one political and economic system, which we have come to think of as the Western way, is in crisis, not only because the two component parts are in crisis, but because they're in crisis interactively. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. The fall of the Berlin Wall was widely viewed as a triumph for both democracy and capitalism. Around that time, Francis Fukuyama referred to an end of history where liberal democracy had triumphed over the ideological alternatives. At the time, most scholars saw democracy and capitalism as complementary. But today, Many portray democracy and capitalism in tension or even conflict. Obviously, some have always warned about the dangers to democracy from extreme forms of economic inequality. However, many also saw capitalism as important for the pluralism necessary for democracy to thrive. Martin Wolf is among those who still believes capitalism is an important component of a vibrant democracy. Martin is the chief economics commentator at the Financial Times. He has written many books, but his most recent is The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Now, I've long wanted to have a conversation that explored the relationship of capitalism and democracy that did not demonize capitalism. That does not mean Martin advocates for an unrestrained version of capitalism. Rather, he sees democracy as a natural constraint on its worst tendencies. So a crisis of democracy naturally becomes a crisis of capitalism, and vice versa. This conversation will help explain why their fates are so intimately connected. Now, if you like this podcast, please like it on Facebook or follow along on Twitter. The Twitter handle is at Dem Paradox. You can also read additional thoughts on democracy from a diverse range of perspectives at democracyparadox.com. If you'd like to contribute a post to the blog, please email me at jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Martin Wolf. Martin Wolf, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. I'm very happy to be with you. Well, Martin, your book is called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. And I find that there's actually a lot to unpack just in the title. 
It links democracy to capitalism and emphasizes that they're both in crisis. But to start out, I'd like to know, is it democracy and capitalism that are in crisis separately, or is it the union of democracy and capitalism together that's really in crisis? I think the answer to both questions is yes. That is to say, I think democracy and capitalism are individually in crisis in that they're not working very well, and that the combination of the two in one political and economic system, which we have come to think of as the Western way, is in crisis not only because the two component parts are in crisis, but because they're in crisis interactively. That is to say, it is impossible to separate the economic system from the political system. It has never been possible to separate them because going back to the very beginning of humanity, the one thing we know is that organized cooperation with how we made ourselves thrive economically, in other words, in as I put it, getting our living and organized cooperation in large groups of intelligent animals means politics. It's very clear that chimpanzees have politics if you look at the profound ethnographic studies that have now been done. And in the same way, human beings are, as Aristotle famously said, political animals. So the two failures of the economic system and the political system can never be separated. And discussion of one system without the other is, I think, a very big error. I like how you've already tied the two together, because I found that that was one of the big insights in the book. And it's not necessarily new. I've heard other people tie capitalism and democracy together but I've never been able to have an in-depth conversation about it. So much of the zeitgeist, if you will, wants to talk about democracy in conflict with capitalism because of inequality. In the book you write, capitalism cannot survive in the long run without a democratic polity, and democracy cannot survive in the long run without a market economy. So why don't we dig in deeper into this idea? How do these opposites complement one another? Well, this is obviously a very deep question, and I spend a lot of my time thinking about it. I mean, first of all, I think one should never ignore historical evidence. And so I start with that, but the conceptual ideas flow from that in a way. So back in the beginning of the 19th century, there weren't any democracies. There had been a few republics in history and a few small democracies But never before in history had large countries with large populations and with great power being governed democratically. And there weren't any in 1800. So in the 19th century, there began to be the emergence of wider franchises, more people allowed to vote. And the result was, even by 1900, a significant improvement. Then there became sort of complex history in the early 20th century and into the middle of the 20th century, but after the Second World War, most prosperous high-income countries were fully democratic in the way we think of it. 
And increasingly, particularly after 1980, that spread across much of the world. So it became actually the most popular form of government. So historically, there was something about the market economy, because these were all market economies that became consolidated democracies, that seemed at least to be favorable to democracy. And furthermore, all the non-market economies, I mean, the fully socialized economies, the economies that didn't allow any room for private enterprise at all, were dictatorships. And that's a pretty powerful historical fact. Now, I think it's possible to explain this because when the market economy really got going, it created economic and social and political forces for the transformation of politics. Some of that was inherent in the ideological basis of the market economy. We tend to forget how revolutionary it once was. In the old days, the economy was run on the basis that the landowners owned and controlled everything. Commerce was really very doubtful and dubious, and periodically the monarch seized all the fruits of commerce. It took a long time for the commercial sector to become autonomous, powerful, dispose of enormous wealth in the way that monarchs had once done and landowners had once done. And they did this on the basis of a really remarkable proposition, which was within the law, anybody could start a business, anybody. They didn't need to be educated. They didn't need to be among the socially entitled. In fact, many of them weren't. You've got the constant stream of innovation and enterprise from new people creating new economic systems and new wealth and shifting around the power system in terms of who, as individuals, controlled it. Now, that was, I think, the fruit of something very powerful, which was the idea that we should run the economy without ascribed status. We should run the economy on the basis of an individualistic idea. Everybody had the right to have a go. That's very radical. And of course, once you have that idea, well, naturally, of course, you apply it everywhere else, including politics. Now, if individuals who are not necessarily the most educated or the most entitled can start a great business or just a small business and be independent, then, of course, they have the right to a say in politics. Why should the vote and the say only go to the landowners? or the very, very rich, they also have value. In other words, both share this idea that the individual matters. It's just one is in e-commerce and business and in life as an economic agent, and the other in political and social life. And so it's natural, I think, to have these two aspects. So if you're going to allow people to have weight in politics, everybody's entitled to it, then over time, you end up extending the franchise. And that's what's kept happening because you could never justify the further restrictions. It's impossible. And then there are very profound economic forces in a market economy, which makes these demands irresistible. So what are these? First, you have mass industrialization and urbanization. So you have large concentrations of people who have no political rights, are economically at the bottom, but they're economically indispensable. They have to make these factories work, and they learn fairly soon. If they strike, they can stop the factory and ruin the value of the capital. There's a real 
power for the lower classes for the first time in a way that the peasantry really never had. They couldn't be organized in this way. Then it became crucial for businesses, and businesses increasingly realize this, to have educated workers. And the country wanted educated workers to make it more prosperous. The politicians wanted it because they were in competition with other politicians in other countries. So we moved to the system of universal education. That was all a consequence, I think, of the prosperity of the capitalist system. And universal education naturally meant people started asking, well, we're educated now, we're literate now. We have a mass labor movement now. We want a say in politics. You're not going to keep us out. And of course, it became impossible to keep them out. They inevitably got the rights which were legitimate for the ideological reasons I've already given you because they were politically powerful. And that required, ultimately, some sort of agreement among classes and factions on how this power should be shared more broadly. It wasn't perfect, but it's a big part of what the New Deal was about. Once, finally, they'd done all that, then, of course, they started saying, we're going to have to make government work for us. That means work for people who didn't have vast wealth, who didn't have independent means. And they inevitably started saying, well, we want a bit of a welfare state. And that's happened in every advanced democracy. The state has got bigger, paying for things like health, unemployment insurance, pensions, which are the demand, naturally enough, of this newly entitled, politically engaged population. So I think that the two things went together historically and logically, and it's very difficult to operate it any other way. Capitalism on its own, as Marx himself said rightly, tends towards monopoly. Capitalists like to rig the markets in their favor. Of course they do. That's a big thing that Adam Smith said. What prevents that? Well, politics prevents that. If the democracy gets angry enough with the power of the monopolists, it will act against them and introduce competition policies. Active competition of policy, breaking up coalitions like Rockefellers, for example, his sort of economic power. And that actually helps capitalism. It's what capitalism needs to be what Adam Smith thought it should be. So I think these relationships are very powerful historically and ideologically. And too many people don't realize how intimately the relationship between capitalism and democracy operated to bring us where we are. So there's obviously a lot to unpack there. But what I found most interesting was not the historical analysis, because I think historically, you can make the argument that they're just synergistic. Democracy helped spur capitalism, and capitalism spurred democracy in different ways. But that doesn't mean that they always go together, though. What I thought was fascinating about your early account was the fact that capitalism begins as almost a democratization of the economy itself. The fact that anybody can get involved. And so there's something in the zeitgeist, something in the essence of capitalism that translates back to democracy. And so it's not just that the two are historically correlated, but that there's something about capitalism itself that is fundamentally democratic, the idea that anybody can start a business, that anybody can be involved in the economy, that anybody can be involved in that key part of our lives, which is the creation of wealth. 
And that, I think, is truly fascinating because I think that it makes us think about both democracy and capitalism a little bit differently. Well, I never know what people find new. I think the history is important because it has changed now. So a big part of my book is it's more difficult now. But I agree with you. Capitalism, as it extended, is democratizing in one very profound way, in the opportunity in some profound sense is open to all. Remember how many of the great fortunes were made by immigrants who had nothing when they came. So they offered opportunities which were not seized by everybody, but were seized by some. And it was destabilizing. The established aristocrats hated it. And we forgot that because they basically disappeared as a political factor, but they hated it. And it is rooted in a liberal individualistic idea. I just argue that the same liberal idea, in essence, even operates within the way we think about politics. But again, one of the great examples prior to the 19th century, no society would ever have chosen somebody like Abe Lincoln as their supreme leader. Where would he have come from? It would have been impossible. So in this respect, this openness to the talents is something that they profoundly share. And it has to do with an essentially optimistic, I would say, in the English sense of the word, liberal idea. So one of the other points that you made was that democracy allows for the creation of a welfare state. It allows for constraints on capitalism particularly constraints on monopoly power. But a lot of those constraints also make capitalism more capitalistic. The constraints on monopolies allow people to continue to enter the market rather than having those entry barriers that keep people out. Even the social welfare state can allow for broad base of consumers that allow producers to be able to create more stuff. Do you feel that democracy helps capitalism become more capitalistic? And conversely, do you also feel that capitalism can help democracy become more democratic? Well, I think both are true, though they're not simple relations. Democracy helps capitalism in the sense it is a protection against a return to plutocracy. And the natural tendency of plutocracy is towards economic ossification because they don't want competitors. Now, I'm going to use an analogy from America, and that's risky because my knowledge of American history is probably not great enough. But my understanding of American history is that the part of the United States where a genuine plutocracy was established was the American South. The wealth of the planter elite was extraordinary relative to that of the rest of the society. They controlled the politics of the southern states to a very, very high degree. And they didn't want, and even more actually, after the slaves were freed, they didn't want any serious competition for the labor of their workers. They didn't want them educated. They didn't want new business to come in. They certainly didn't want them to be part of social security, and they succeeded with that. They prevented that. So they ossified their economies. Now, this hasn't lasted forever. Clearly, nothing can last forever within this continent, but for a very long time, they ossified their economies. And by the way, this was a point that Tocqueville noted already in his democracy in America. So the point is that if you have a real plutocracy, 
with a single shared economic interest, they're going to try and ossify the economy for their benefit. And we see this again and again all over the world. And I think I argue in my book, that's part of what we're seeing with the tech sector. And it's, of course, what the trust busters of 1900s or so were seeing with what was happening with the great oil cartel. So, yeah, if you want a competitive market economy, which is really what I mean by capitalism, you need a political system that will react against plutocratic control of the economy. And that means it can't be a plutocracy. Now, the other way around, imagine that we have a fully socialized economy. So we don't have any market economy. It's fairly extreme, but there have been attempts. Once the state actually owns everything and it's legitimate, that means the head of the state, the people at the top, essentially control everything. And if you control everything, you're going to want to tell people what to do. And that means you end up with a hierarchical, organized, ordered economy, which we know tends to stagnation and paralysis. And finally, once you've got an economy like that, and this links back to the democracy, how are you going to start an opposition movement? The people in charge own everything. They won't want to lose power because there's nothing for them to do once they've lost power, because there's nowhere else to go. There are no other institutions which will support them. Nothing is independent in such a society. So they will say political opposition is treason. And that's what they do say. And they fought it systematically everywhere. Even when they move towards the market economy a little bit, as in China, as soon as these capitalists start raising their voices just a little, as Jack Ma did recently when he said, well, you know, the way you run your banking system is silly. He's a billionaire, incredibly successful, made a very mild remark, and he's immediately anathema. You can't run a democracy, obviously, in a society which is organized like this. So without a market economy, you don't have democracy. Just as without democracy, the market economy won't stand. They need each other very deeply in the long run. Now, I think the strongest case is the one that you just made, the fact that market economy gives a place for an opposition movement to exit from politics and not to worry about how they're going to provide for their families, how they're going to provide for themselves, that there's a place to go, that there's not only vibrant businesses, but even a vibrant nonprofit sector, if you think about it. Absolutely. The state has to be circumscribed, and it must be circumscribed by legal and other protections which people believe in. And that's already a huge part of what is needed also to make democracy work. And it's not what a fully socialized economy is going to give you. Now, there are cases, though, where people have shut down democracy in order to make market reforms. Chile is one example that comes to my mind, where you had lots of Chicago school economists who even came to advise Pinochet. So in a case like Chile, in a case like other dictatorships that have popped up around the world. How is it that we should think about those countries, especially in terms of how democracy is necessary for capitalism in the longer run rather than what they're focused on, which is the short run? So I think the way I think about this, in analytically, I'm not going to get into the morality of this, though you want to, you can. The process that led 
from the market economy to democracy started with the market economy, and it took a long time. So if I look at my own country, which is sort of where it all starts, the market economy had turned into industrialization, so something more dynamic in the early part of the 19th century. And the full universal suffrage, unambiguous for everybody, all adults, was reached in 1930. So it took 130 years. This is a very long process. And I argue that the economy triggered the changes that brought this about. So let's think of uh, interesting cases which sort of support the thesis. Look at Korea and Taiwan. So Korea was a dictatorship, a military dictatorship under Park Chung-hee. At American instigation, and because they were very concerned about their security, they reformed their economy and created a dynamic capitalist economy with strong Japanese characteristics of guided capitalism of a sub. And this economy was spectacularly successful. And Taiwan is a similar story, but of course, its political fate is more ambiguous for reasons you know. By the 1980s, there began to be really serious protests because by then, already, Korea was a highly educated society, immensely prosperous, and the ways of the military dictatorship were increasingly intolerable. And this led to upheavals. But at the end of those upheavals, what emerged was a pretty vibrant, complicated, difficult, imperfect democracy, and the same has happened in Taiwan. So I would say these stories sort of fit in with this pretty well. So in the long run, if you get a successful market economy, the demands for a democratic settlement and a vibrant democratic settlement rise to a level which you can't resist. And this actually did happen in Chile, which is actually a very vibrant democracy. There's no doubt about that in all sorts of directions. However, in the Chilean case, this followed a crisis of the democratic system in which a revolutionary left was legitimately elected and overthrown. I personally think that the IND government would have failed. It was embarked on a process that would have been too disruptive, but I wasn't involved in this in any way. And I think it was very great tragedy. But I do think that the stories broadly support the idea that if you create a successful economy with a rising middle class, the demands for democracy will become overwhelming. And though Chile is certainly imperfect, most people now, I think, would say of the states of South America, it has one of the more stable democratic systems. And that's at least very encouraging. Definitely, Chile is an example where even though democracy collapsed in the 1970s, it did return, obviously. And like you said, it's been one of the most stable democracies in Latin America since then. And even with the conflicts over the Constitution, Freedom House and other ratings of democracy still continue to score Chile incredibly high in terms of its rating of democracy. And if anything, those conflicts about its Constitution are really just an expression of democracy about what is it that our values are and everything else. I mean, these are just typical debates that happen over time in a democracy. I'd like to step to where we start to talk about the crisis, because we've kind of made the case about how you see these two coming together, democracy and capitalism. But you also make the case that they're now in crisis. And I think it begins with this idea of 
status anxiety. Can you explain what it is and how it changes the stability of democratic capitalism? Well, I suppose my basic idea as it evolved, which was you know, starting to write in 2016, which is when I really thought about this book. And the question was, how did we get here? Why did so many Americans think that Donald Trump was the best available president, even if you know he didn't get the majority of the vote? A lot of people thought he was the best available president. Why did our people decide we should cut our links with the EU and basically repudiate everything that expert opinion thought was sensible? What had happened? Why were they so disillusioned? So the view I came to was that, of course, always many people in a society who are disaffected and distressed. That's quite normal in complex societies. But for people to want changes of this scale, who are repudiating the system itself in this way, they have to be pretty unhappy. And so what might have made them pretty unhappy? And the obvious answers, in my view, is that over quite a long period, economic changes and the performance of the economy interacting produce quite a large number of people really a large number of people who feared that they were becoming losers. And they feared that they risked falling into the condition of people who really were at the bottom, which they had struggled very hard, both as individuals and collectively, to escape in the creation of the modern capitalist economy of the mid-20th century with strong unionized labor forces, high wages, and that in itself then generating a lot of quite good service jobs as well. Fairly equal societies by historical standards, both before the mid-20th century and afterwards, highly equal in all the Western countries, and Thomas Piketty has written about that. What then happened was a series of very powerful changes. First of all, Productivity growth, therefore the underlying growth of the economy, slowed, not insignificantly from where it had been in the 50s and 60s. Secondly, we began a process of mass deindustrialization. Part of that was trade, but the biggest factors related to productivity growth and satiation. We had a huge rise in demand for more educated people in the new sectors and what is called technically skills bias, technical progress, very big rises in the wages and incomes of the more skilled, that is say, predominantly increasingly university educated people as against unskilled labor. By unskilled, I mean people who hadn't got university degrees. Many of them also hadn't even finished high school. And this combination of events led to a marked divergence of opportunity and prospects. I think it's got worse since then in different ways between the more educated and the less so. And over on top of this, economic reforms, which liberalization led to the immense growth of the financial sector and the dominance of the financial sector in management, which generated some simply staggering fortunes at the top of the system for chief executives and others connected to this part of the system. So we recreated an oligarchy. I think there's no doubt about that increasingly. Then you found 
a lot of people in the declining working class, and this seems to have been across all the European and American countries pretty well, started feeling really insecure about their own future and that of their children. Many of them lost their jobs and they ended up with much worse and less secure jobs. They felt downwardly mobile and that's made them very anxious. And they felt the parties of the central left had largely abandoned them, were no longer really interested in their fate. And they passed through voting for the normal centre-right and then increasingly were interested in the more radical central-right. A crucial role in all this was the financial crisis because it delegitimized the core of the financial, economic and political establishment. It was an obvious failure. It was a very expensive failure. It led in the short to medium term to massive disruption, high unemployment, lots of defaults and loss of houses that people had bought. And the only people who seemed to be saved were the rich. And of course, these establishments of both parties in all our countries were deeply involved. You know, the Republicans were in power when the crisis happened in the US, I just focus on that. But of course, the Democrats then were in power when they put it all back together again. And after that, to add insult to injury, there was a pronounced fiscal austerity. And though they may not have been so aware of it, a lot of the price of that austerity took the form of modest growth and uh, restrictions on spending and support of these people. So they became very, very angry. The status anxiety turned into real anger. And they were looking for leaders since they didn't trust any of the established leaders. They'd lost trust in them, quite obviously. They were looking for somebody who wouldn't necessarily fix their problems. They didn't, I think, alas, believe that anyone could fix their problems. But they sure as hell wanted somebody who would express their anger and identify with them. And that's, I think, why they chose Brexit. And that's why I think why they chose Trump. And we see this in many, many other countries. Essentially, an increasing sense that the failure of the economic system was a failure of the system and the deal they had struck, both politically and economically. And something had to change, but they didn't really know what, but at least this demagogue came along, looked attractive. And then I found, to my surprise, when I look back at the writing on this, that this sort of process had been described, mutatis mutandis, by Plato back in the Republic. And I don't deny cultural and social factors play a big role, but there's a lot of evidence, a lot of evidence that economic disruption, economic failure, and especially economic crises have profound political effects precisely because they make these cultural and social differences politically salient. What I'm also hearing from you is that capitalism became less democratic. To kind of steal some terms from business and kind of MBA schools, it seems that the people who describe themselves as left behind faced both entry barriers and exit barriers. They faced entrance barriers because they didn't have the education necessary to get those extraordinarily high-paying jobs. But at the same time, they also faced exit barriers to be able to leave their communities, to move into those cities where those high-paying jobs existed, where more opportunities might exist. In the United States, we might be thinking about the coasts like California and the East Coast. In 
Britain, we might be thinking about London as opposed to Northern England and some of those other areas. But you've got these exit barriers involving the price of real estate to be able to move into those communities, the loss of family, both morally, but also economically, where you don't have somebody to be able to watch your kids if you have both parents working outside the home. And there's so much that you're giving up to be able to make that transition. And it becomes almost impossible once somebody's already made a life for themselves. So it feels very much that capitalism kind of lost its democratic edge at this point and became, like you described, much more plutocratic, almost aristocratic. That is a beautiful way, better than I did, of expressing part of what happened. Uh, and it brings out the aspects of regional differences, particularly because we've essentially ended up with two overlapping core class divisions. So we've got the working class, which is clearly downwardly mobile. There's no doubt what they had is no longer as valuable as it used to be. Economics is working against them. Then you have the emergence of an increasingly numerous and increasingly economically and culturally influential, what I following Thomas Piketty called the Brahmin class, which basically means the university educated. It is extraordinary that now the number of people who have been to university in the younger generations is greater than the number of working class people. That's an incredible transformation of our society. And they feel dissatisfied too because of the last class, which is the immensely successful what's called the top 1%, in some cases just top 0.1% of people who own everything, and at least the most successful professionals, business leaders and so forth, whose incomes have exploded, and dramatically so in the US, and who look like being overwhelmingly the winners to everybody else. And then everybody, as you rightly say, most people who aren't in the great cities, can't access the new jobs, which are very concentrated in certain areas, the San Francisco region in America, obviously Silicon Valley and all that, LA, New York, Boston, I suppose around a few other cities, Chicago, Atlanta, I don't know how many, but they're expensive. And they're absolutely full of very ambitious, highly educated people scrabbling for all the good opportunities. This is a very tough environment. And if you've got an ordinary job, you're actually going to be better off staying where you are. So this ossifies things. These are immense problems. And they're not going to be easy to solve. Some of this is just about obvious policy change. We could do some of the things about the housing market firm. We can do some things about regional support. We can do other things. But the economy itself and this only became more obvious to me in the course of writing, but the economy itself isn't doing democracy-friendly things in the way that it was when mass industrialization created all these opportunities for all those immigrants who came to the US without many skills and found, you know, it's tough, but they found in the end jobs with much higher pay, much higher security than they ever had before. And they created over time this blooming, blossoming American middle class. And similar things happened elsewhere. The economy isn't helping us to do that anymore. And I think if you look at the future, AI and so forth, it could be worse. You've already mentioned the way that these economic conditions exist has brought about the rise of populism 
in politics, both in the United States, in Europe, really throughout the entire democratic world, to be honest. Indeed. Do you feel that populism is similar enough in all of these different places? Or do you feel like there's substantial differences, though, that we're seeing from country to country? So I became persuaded in my reading of the literature on this that all populists start off with one thing in common. They rail against the elites. They're anti-elite. And often they're anti-elite for good reason. That is to say, they succeed because a very large proportion of the population share their contempt for the existing elites. And they articulate it well. And I think every country I can see where what we would call a populist politician with those sorts of themes has succeeded. And I could go through a lot of them in Europe, but in Turkey, in India, in Brazil. You can understand why there is this popular resentment of the elites. Then, in some cases, many cases, this populist also carries a lot of straightforward anti-democratic baggage. That only becomes obvious when he gets into power with his anti-elite language. Being anti-elite doesn't work indefinitely once you are the elite. You have to play some other game. So what they need to do is to provide a motivation for continued support. And at this stage, though sometimes earlier, they start adopting what scholars call anti-pluralism as their motto. What that means is they start saying, the reason we're not succeeding is that there are enemies within, and they're not just the elites. There are profound segments of our population who are essentially treasonous. They're not the real people. We are the real people, and I am the only real leader because I represent the real people. Now, once you've got a leader who has these things, he's justified morally and intellectually and politically in doing two very important things. The first is undermining the elite institutions, which are mostly the constraining institutions of society. They're the most important elite institutions, like the police force, the legal system, security and other such bodies, the armies, of course, the power system. And basically saying, all the people who run these things are traitors, and I've got to replace them with people who are loyal to us. And in the process, of course, of getting rid of these constraining institutions, this person basically seizes control of the political system. The other thing that happens is he starts mobilizing politics at the day-to-day level and society at the day-to-day level around the theme of, you people who support me are the good people. And the people who oppose me, and particularly the people who oppose me because they're different from you, they might be pointy-headed intellectuals, or they're blacks, or they're gay, or whatever it may be. It could be Jews. This is, in a way, arbitrary. depends what works. They're the enemy, and basically we should deprive them of political rights so far as we can. And indeed, we're entitled to because they're not part of the real people, and they're the enemy. At this stage, pretty obviously, the populist leader morphs into a despot. And sooner or later, he's likely to say, well, we don't need elections anymore because you've got the right leader. We all know that, don't we? And that's, of course, also happened and is happening. 
So this is a process of hollowing out democracy from within by a leader whose initial rhetoric is populist, but whose intentions are more malign. But there's something else that can be said, which is very interesting, is an anti-elite politician is sometimes an inescapable and desirable tool of democracy. That's where it becomes important to make distinctions. So I essentially argue in the book that Probably there's no politician in the last century who has used populist motifs and populist rhetoric more powerfully and more effectively than FDR. And in my view, he was fully unjustified in doing so. What he was saying was true. But despite, of course, many people, as you know very well, better than me, argued at the time that he was a would-be dictator and was going to turn America into a dictatorship, actually he used the energy that he generated through his populism, through his saying, we've got to change things profoundly, to actually introduce a number of absolutely first-rate reformers into his administration, to make many experiments, some of which failed and some of which were dramatic successes. He re-legitimized American democracy after the catastrophe of the Depression. He brought in reforms like Social Security, which were incredibly important. He began to introduce much better macroeconomic policies. So a populist politician, or at least a politician with demagogic appeal, can, I think, and now might well be what is needed to restore healthy democracy. And I think the key difference is, do you, in the end, respect the core institutions of the state? And you recognize that pluralism is a desirable and inherent characteristic of a democracy, or do you think it needs to be suppressed? Well, I think if that's the solution to the crisis of democratic capitalism, that's a difficult needle to thread, because we're looking for that person who's capable of using that same language, but still has the respect for democracy, capitalism, and really just the basic values of human rights. Yeah, what you need, it's particularly true in America. I think elsewhere it's different. I think America is now, alas, and it's terrifying because it's so incredibly important, in greater difficulty than elsewhere. I go in great length why that's so. Partly it's just a much more complex society. But yeah, you need a populist as effective as Trump with a personality which is the 180 degrees opposite. And I have to say that... All in all, I have immense respect for what Biden is trying to do. It's highly imperfect. Lots of criticisms can be made. He's clearly not FDR. How could he be? I'm not really expecting that. But I think he sort of gets it. He gets the need to speak to the people who feel anxious and understands why, because he's working class roots. He has brought together a broad democratic coalition, which can represent a whole range of important groups that need protection. He has proposed a really quite brave economic program in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. I would like that to be bigger and the fiscal package they put in at the beginning smaller, but we can debate that. I think he's really trying to create the conditions in which ordinary Americans will feel again government can actually do things we need to get done and that we want to get done. It can be effective 
it can make us better off. And because actually you can't run a modern country without a reasonably effective government. And that essentially the nihilism that has now seized the Republican Party, alas, is a cul-de-sac. If a majority of people in America could feel that, which is clearly what Biden is trying to achieve, that seems to me could open up a great deal of opportunity. And the crucial thing, I think, is in terms of its potential to solve these problems, not the likelihood, America is a better place than anywhere else in the world. It has underlying it staggering resources. It has the most dynamic economy at the frontier of the world and still continues to do so. Uh, it has the best educational institutions. It has a huge number of the world's most successful corporations. And it's essentially self-sufficient in vital resources. If it can't fix these problems and restore the vitality of democracy, who can? And why would anyone imagine that anything else will be worthy of the American Republic? Well, Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to plug the book one last time, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism. Thank you so much for writing it, and thank you so much for joining me once again. It was an enormous pleasure. You made me say things I had never said before. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.